I don't have the skill sets that uh, a lot of fellows seem to have when it comes to both mechanical abilities and directions. I just do not. I can lift heavy things, but that's about all the help I can be. I've known this for a long time. My wife will regularly say to me, just even living in this area, are you supposed to go left there? I thought we were going right. Oh, yeah. Right would be probably better. Direction has never been my strength. I've, I've come to learn that, that uh, there's, there, there's people on the far one side that are very concrete. They just, they're good with, they can see maps and nuts and bolts and construction engineers. And then there's the abstract. Most people are in the middle somewhere. I am way over here. I like books, not bolts. Theories more than tools. It's just the way I'm wired. So I got in a real bind several years ago when we were at our church's family camp in California. We did something similar to what we're doing now. We would go up camp. Over 100 people from our church family would go up about eight-hour drive from Southern California right outside Yosemite. Now, Yosemite is a big park, a little bit bigger than Rock Cut State Park. You drive about eight or ten miles just to get from the turnoff to the front gate of Yosemite. It's that big. It's huge. And we were with our church family camp when I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering right, my oldest, our oldest was 18 months old because I could carry him in a backpack, which I cannot do now. <laughs> and our second son was, was yet to be born. He was in the womb. So... We were this young family at this church we were connecting with, and we were newer to this church family. We went to this church camp, and I remember we, were at, we had gone for the day into Yosemite to hike around, and a group of people were going to meet at this other site, and I had my son Jake in this little backpack with his little chubby legs hanging here, and they're like, yeah, it's pretty easy. 15-minute walk. It's right there. Get to the river and turn left. Shouldn't take you more than 15 minutes. And I remember my wife saying to me, you're in Yosemite. You sure you want to do this? I, he said, yeah, how am I going to miss a river? Well, I missed the river. I'm walking for three hours. And I never hit a river. And I'm telling you right now, you, I'm, it's funny to laugh at now. It was not funny in that moment because I have an 18-month-old little boy sitting. I, I lost his hat somewhere back. I don't know where his little hat went on that big old head of his. And he's hot in the sun, and we only had one water bottle, and I had no food. And I thought I was going to find this river. And I remember looking up into that sunny California sky and saying a little prayer, asking, Lord, help me find this river. And a few minutes later, a good 20, 30 minutes later, I finally found that river. And I, oh, I didn't know how far down I was. But I turned left and started walking, and not long after, I found a guy. They had sent out a search party for me because my wife let him know we should have never let him go by himself. <laughs> and uh, they, 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 when, I, when I saw that brother from our church, I was overjoyed. And I, Laura took the child. I don't think I saw him again until he was four. Uh, <laughs> but we, we survived. But directions are important, and I've never been good at that. And if we're being honest, when it comes to the Bible, that's such a big book, it's hard to get our bearings. Like there's 66 books by 40-ish authors written over several different centuries that's kind of hard to keep together in one story, because that's what it is. 
but you're supposed to just get to the river. And I mean that literally. In the beginning of the Bible, there's a river. And the end of the Bible, there's a river, the end of Revelation. And the whole story, like this river I was supposed to walk to, the whole biblical story can be walked alongside this main storyline, like a river that ebbs and flows left and right, but ultimately is describing who God is, what God has done, what He'd invite us to do. In every book, in every chapter, God is guiding us along from Genesis to Revelation to ultimately see who He is and what He's done for us. But sometimes it's hard to get your bearings. It's easy to get confused, like I did, just not knowing the terrain. So when we're jumping into a book like First and Second Samuel, I feel like we need a little bit of bearings. We got to understand what we're dealing with, so we know where we're jumping in. So that's what I want to do for us today. I want to give you a bit of a "you are here" statement along the trail of the biblical story, just so you know where we're at and where it's going. I want you to be able to see the whole story so we can properly read the individual parts we're about to jump into. And then I'm going to look at a text in Deuteronomy. I know you heard it was 1 and 2 Samuel, and I start with Deuteronomy. But that's because in that passage in Deuteronomy, God forecasts the kind of king that he wants Israel to have. And that backdrop is very important because all of 1st and 2nd Samuel show God's people wrestling. Are we going to trust in God's chosen king or are we going to want a king of our own making? And knowing that little backdrop in Deuteronomy 17 gives you a you are here context to rightly walk alongside the river of the biblical story that it tells. But before we jump into these things, let me pray and ask the Lord to minister to us this morning. Father, thank you for your word, which we ask that this morning you would open our eyes to see the wondrous things of your law. And thank you that it is, as we'll talk about today, a ministry, a tool for ministry that reveals your person and your work. It helps us see ourselves. It helps us navigate our world so that we can walk and not be lost. Father, thank you for the books of Samuel. We pray collectively that for this church family in the season that we're in through these books, that you would speak your truth through them and that we would respond properly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a brief introduction to the books of Samuel. Arguably, First and Second Samuel were one long book. It's a continuing story. So most think that the reason it's broken into two books is because the entire story couldn't have fit on one scroll. Hence, they divided it into two halves. The first book ultimately dealing a lot with the life and work of King Saul, and the second one focusing almost entirely on King David. The context is important, though, and hearing this, you are here, like you're walking the trail, and you're kind of wondering, how far have we gone, or where are we at on the trail? Let me give you a little bit of a you are here for the context of the books of Samuel. God had redeemed his people in what's called the Exodus. They had been literally slaves captive to a foreign power called Egypt for centuries. God had redeemed his people. He was claiming them as their own. He was demarcating them to be set apart under his rule and his reign. 
But Israel, after the Exodus, was forging its way in a broken world as God's people. They knew what their identity was supposed to be, but it was too tempting. There were threats to these God's people, Israel, by nearby groups. One opponent nation-state that challenges them regularly are the Philistines. And they're, they're navigating that. They see their might and force, and they feel like they need to match that. Again, the whole time God has said, are you going to trust in yourselves, or are you going to trust in me? At the same time, not only are they feeling the threat from these power groups around them, but they're emulating them. The values of the world, stuff we can all relate to, was tempting. Other people groups tempted Israel to be and act like them. But again, they were set apart. That's what the word holiness means. Be holy as I am holy. That holy language in the Bible is not just purity codes of morality. That's part of it. But it ultimately is set apart. That's what holy means. That you and I would live set apart from the world. We would be identified as his people and belonging to no other. In living according to his standards, submitting to God and not just to the standards of this world. That's the context. That's that you are here in the biblical story. The historical books, and I'll explain what that means in a minute, but the books around and including 1 and 2 Samuel tell the sad story of how God's people, in this case Israel, failed to obey God and continually broke the covenant that he's made with them. He, he offers to adopt them as his children. He offers them all their provision. He says, trust in me. But they don't. They want to trust in themselves or trust in the things of the world. Ultimately, the prophets, priests, and kings of Israel fail to honor God in word and deed. So, so hear this. What's so beautiful about Scripture is this is not just us reading a story about people who blew it. This is God wanting us to get a glimpse of the human heart. Like we would be very much mistaken if we just read this book and just ripped on God's people of old and didn't see that actually God is showing the tendency in all our human hearts. Who isn't tempted to trust in the things other than God? Who isn't influenced by the values and the popular things in our world? Who isn't tempted to trust in power and wealth and kings other than God? We all are. So think of these books, like the books of Samuel, as God pastoring us. Slowly and pastorally, God reveals himself, shows God's people, us now included as part of this story, to be incompetent to do what we want to do on our own. To show that the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king that we always needed was actually Jesus Christ. See, there's that river of the story from the river running through the Garden of Eden to the river in Revelation 21 and 22 of the new creation. When you walk along that river, you see yourself, you see God's work in the world and God's purposes. And that river ends at Jesus Christ. So looking even in your notes, I gave you this little description. This is just my way of helping us think through how to read the Old Testament. Like, I feel like we need that. Again, we've talked about a biblical illiteracy in our day and age, and it doesn't hurt to have just 
four minutes for me to explain, hey, here's your Old Testament in view. Understanding that you are here in Samuel's placement in the biblical story. You could break the Old Testament into four parts. Law, history, wisdom, and prophets. And you'll notice on the, on the right, I've got all 39 Old Testament books li- listed there with First and Second Samuel highlighted. There's the you are here. And that's their canonical order. Starts in Genesis and it ends in Malachi. But look at this breakdown. At the beginning of the Old Testament, God ministers to us by showing us his person. The law declares who God is, what he made us to be, what he made the world to be, our identity to be grounded in him. He reveals that. That's important for the rest of the biblical story. God's person matters. And Genesis through Deuteronomy cover those things. Right after Deuteronomy, you go into the history books, which goes from Joshua to Esther. Consider those books to be God's pastoring where he explains what is good and right and true. He shows God's people how to do this or that, like a, like, like a parent or grandparent working with their kids, showing them exactly how to mow the lawn or start the mower or wash the dish or clean a room or to think about driving, driving or whatever it may be. There's pastoring along the way. Think of those books as God pastoring his people, not just in the original historical event, but even through Scripture today in our lives. Then the wisdom books. Consider those God's parenting. In fact, if you were to read through Proverbs, and several Christian traditions use the month of July, 31 days in July, to read through all 31 Proverbs. If you were to read Proverbs in that one month, you would find that numerous times it says, my son, my child, my child, my child. It is a father speaking to his children. It shows us what it means to know who God is and to apply it to God's world. Finally come the prophets. The big five, the major prophets, denoted as such by their size, and then the smaller minor prophets. Again, specifically in their ordering, describe God's promising. He revealed his person, he pastors his people, he parents them in wisdom, and he promises what he will ultimately do. That is the, you are here. Now you can look at the books of Samuel and say, I see where it is. Not just in the ordering of the books in the Old Testament, but in the biblical story, along the path of the river going from the Garden of Eden to the new creation. We are in that section where God is pastoring his people, us included, showing us what it means to follow him, to trust in him, to not be tempted by the values or the powers of our world, but to trust that Jesus alone is the ultimate king. So let me give you just a summary of some of the issues, the big issues that we're going to see in Samuel, and then we'll look at that text in Deuteronomy. One is this, God shows us in the books of Samuel how he alone establishes his people and their king. In this book, you will see a clear depiction of the kind of king that God wants for his people and how he will bring that about. It's it's over several chapters and several books, but he wants you to focus on the nature of the kingship that God has established. And ultimately, arguably the key passage in all of that is in the second book of Samuel, chapter 7, where this Davidic king is revealed. This part of this, a major turn in the 
river of God's story from Genesis to Revelation where God reveals the image of the one who will ultimately be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Here's a second theme in these books, that the world will tempt us to define ourselves and our values by standards other than God. Please hear this. You will not have us read or hear me read these texts for us week after week and simply pillage God's people of old as if they were clueless. These books are meant to be mirrors to the human condition and the human heart. We put ourselves in the place not of the victor or the self-righteous, but of those who know that we too need to trust God. And it is tempting not to. And we all know that. When, when, when things are going well, we are all God. The moment we get a diagnosis for our health that's scary, we can be angry. We can be frustrated. We, 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 we can cry out to God in an angry way. We can rely on human means to figure things out. It is hard to trust God when your life or livelihood or most important relationships are at stake. The fact that we can immediately question and challenge God shows that we are tempted not to trust in Him at all times. To show that we, just like our forefathers and mothers of Israel in the Old Testament, have the same human heart condition. The last theme is that God reveals the failures of Israel's kings and the need for a true and faithful king, Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what this will show, and no text does that, at least sets the backdrop for that, better than Deuteronomy 17. So let's turn there. I'm calling this text the, the, the context for the books of Samuel, the criteria for God's king. Notice how it starts in verse 14 in Deuteronomy 17. Notice how God is aware of what his people will want and uses that to direct them to what they need. He, here's God talking about the future, right? I mean, it hasn't even happened yet. This is when he's promising to provide for them. Here's what he says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, now, of course, they haven't even received it yet. He's just telling them that they will. And when you possess it, and even when you dwell in it, then you will say this to me. It's like he knows exactly what they're going to want. Like you with your kids knowing the moment you go to check out at Target, somebody's asking for candy. And you might be said in the car, when we're checking out at Target, do not ask me for M&Ms. Because you know full well that when they're at eye level of M&Ms, they're going to be asking for M&Ms. God, even more beautifully than that, knows the heart of his people so well that when he's promising them years before about the land he will give them, he's like, you are going to move into this land and look at your neighbors and you're going to say, I want what they have. This is how he describes it. You giving, the land I'm giving you, possess it and dwell in. Then you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Like God preemptively says, you're going to want a king like them. Israel was supposed to be different. Every other nation around them had a king, yet God was to be their king. As you'll see in this books of Samuel, God will say, you don't want that kind of a king. You want a God kind of a king. But God's people are so tempted to trust in the things of the world, which we can understand, that they're like, no, God, we think we know what kind of king better than we, we need better than you do. 
So then God, almost preemptively to show them the kind of king that they need, the one that they should want, describes that king in verses 15 to 20. And he gives three qualifications for the king that they will or should have. The first is this, and it's in verse 15. God's king would be divinely appointed. He says at the beginning of 15, I will allow you to set a king over you, but it should be the one the Lord your God will choose. God's people would, would not have a king based on popularity or military strength contra the world. And we're going to see this with Saul. The guy's tall. He's athletic. He's powerful. He's a warrior. That looks like a king. And you're going to hear God say, remember the criteria. It is not based on talent. It is not based on Twitter followers. It would be a king approved by God. God's king goes deeper than the values and even the powers of this world. The second qualification is in verses 16 and 17. God's king would rely on God and not the tools of the world. Now there's some interesting statements made and I'm going to do some cultural translation for you, but let me read first verses 16 and 17. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now let me do some cultural translation. Every time you hear horses being mentioned, think warfare. Every time you hear wealth or even trading with other nations, again, think monetary prosperity. And every time you hear wives, think politics. Horses in the ancient world were tanks or planes or bombs of today. They dominated. Whoever had the strongest force of technology would win. If you had horses in the ancient world, versus even, even three times the amount of foot soldiers, the horses would win. God is telling them not to rely on military strength. Now, again, imagine Israel. Like, spiritually, we're like, gotcha, God, you're pretty cool. That man in the wilderness was awesome. But do you see the thousands of horses they have? And I got a donkey and two cows. Like, seriously, God, God's like, your king will not trust in those things. And you can imagine Israel feeling so vulnerable because they got to trust in the word of God for his people rather than holding in their own possession this military might. You watch how God's people do with that in this book. Watch how God pastors us to not just rip on them, but say to you, are you trusting in your own might? The might of your nation? The might of your people group? And not on God? God's king will not trust in those things. Again, I love that image of Jesus all the way to the end of Revelation as a lamb. That's kind of wimpy sounding, isn't it? It's a slain lamb sitting on the throne in Revelation. And that is the conquering one. What a reversal of the world's values. 
So you can just imagine everything you and I would rely on for power, we've probably been catechized by what our culture says develops success. When God presents that image, it is a bloodied lamb. I mean, couldn't it be a grizzly bear or something? Like lion of some sort? Like a lamb is the power? Because the world's values are not God's. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Every time you see trade language with Egypt, or even the gold and silver, think wealth. If God would be his people's strength, God would be his people's supplier. And he wanted them to trust him. And even with wives, the marrying off of a daughter or a, a to a particular king in another country, or receiving the daughter for your son was the politicking of the day, right? It was the way that we have our little packs and we organize and we group and we figure out, well, compromising on things. God's like, you are an embassy of a different kingdom. You're not bartering and trading for your power. God's king would trust in the strength of God, in the supplies of God, and the sovereignty of God over all others. Now notice how those three things, warfare, wealth, and politics, are still what the world fights over today. Hasn't stopped. Deuteronomy 17, written how many millennia ago, is as relevant today as it was back then. Our world seeks power and influence through warfare, through wealth, and through politics. So immediately we must ask the question, how should God's people, the church, Think about such things today. How should we engage in the world when we are entrusting ourselves to a different kind of king? So the first criterion, God's king would be divinely appointed. The second criterion, God's king would rely on God and not the tools of this world. And finally, the third, God's king would rule according to the principles of God's word. 18 through 20 fleshed this out so clearly. Look at how 18 starts. And when he, this ultimate king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Like he will have his own personal copy, right? It shall be with him, verse 19. He shall read it all the days of his life. The Bible will be his manual, his lifelong companion, his source of wisdom and strength. His life would reflect the book as he studies it. Look at how the middle of 19 to the end of 20 ends. What's the, what's the reason for all this? So that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. In short, he would be a king who would serve the king. When the, when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, that, that, that in English that can be an awkward sense. I mean, we, we can have this sense of like cowering fear, like we're scared of somebody. Fear is simply rightly prioritizing him. He's, he's the most important thing. He, he's, he's, the, he's regarded the highest. We fear him in that we trust in him the most. So the Bible all throughout says, 
Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Make him number one. Make him the one you trust in the most. If you're going to deviate, it's going to be based upon this guy's opinion, not God's word. You will line yourself with him. He is the plumb line. He is the ruler. He is the level. He is the foundation. That will be the one you lock in with. That's what fear in the Old Testament means. Now imagine this river we're walking along from Eden to the new creation. Imagine the biblical story coming through these Old Testament books, Deuteronomy 17, the books of Samuel, through the wisdom literature and the prophetic promises. And now you come to the New Testament. And you've heard a whole lot about God's king. And you've heard a whole ton of stories that say nothing about the kind of king that this one was promising. Even David, as we'll come to find out, was not the man. So then you come and you're seeing this guy named Jesus. And you're reading Deuteronomy 17. You're reading the books of Samuel and the rest of the Old Testament. And you're seeing the character of Jesus. And imagine the early church reading again the Old Testament in light of Jesus and having an aha moment. That is the king. He is one who God would appoint. Remember when Jesus showed up on the scene and literally a voice from the heaven says, this is my son whom I approve. He would be a king who would not rely on the tools of the world, but completely on God. Satan himself Notice what Satan did in direct contrast to Deuteronomy 17. Satan can come up to Jesus and say, I will give you all the warfare, right? All the wealth, all the power. I'll give you all that stuff. All your people go after that. Will you be like the rest of the sons of the first Adam? And every time by that very word of God, Jesus would rebuke Satan and say, absolutely not. That is not true power. Wealth, politicking. My kingdom is not of this world. And finally, God's king would rule. Jesus would rule according to the principles of God's word. In fact, the gospel of John literally calls Jesus the word. It's not surprising then that over 600 times in the New Testament, the word Lord is used, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, maybe when we hear the word Lord in our Christian context, if you were raised in it, you just, it kind of gets diluted a little bit. But you know what Lord means? King. So over 600 times, the apostles describe him as King Jesus. King Jesus. King Jesus. King Jesus. So we can expect the books of Samuel to pastor us. We've seen the context. We've Unlike me in that first three hours of that hike, we, we've kind of found the river now. We, we, we've seen the sign that says, you are here. We, we've seen God reveal his person. We know that in Samuel, he's pastoring us along the biblical story. He's giving us this image. He's not going to say the name Jesus, or there's not going to be a picture of a cross somewhere, but the characteristics are so clear that when Jesus comes, you know it's talking about him. He's going to detail the failure of God's people of old who failed to live set apart in the world who were full of false kings to help us see ourselves. Don't be surprised if along the way you feel the conviction of God's Spirit that you too are trusting in the things of this world and not in your king. 
And it's God's mercy that he says, trust in me, my child. But ultimately, this, these books will point us to the one who would truly be God's king, and his name is Jesus. And somewhere near the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, a scene is depicting the coronation of God's king. Let me read those words that the Apostle John wrote for us. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Picture the scene. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, this is including us, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it reveals not just past history, which is good and true and important, but our history. And thank you like a, like a scan, it shows us our own heart condition and our propensity to trust in the things of this world and the, the, the warfare and the wealth and the politics of human kingdoms and not trusting in you, our true king. Father, we live in a world that relies on those things, and yet we are called to be set apart to trust and obey our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would guide us at Hope Church to do that as we listen to your word and allow you to pastor us through this series. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.